one of my dearest friends on the podcast today. Greg Lynn is one of uh, the top real estate professionals in the country based in San Francisco. And Greg, I welcome you to the show today. How are you, buddy? Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So San Francisco, you know, you know, I lived there 20 years ago. And when I was there, it was an incredibly expensive city. But tell me a little bit about the San Francisco market. What's it like now? I know that there is such a great international demand for San Francisco. It's a global city. Give me a little bit of background as to where the market is at the moment. Sure, will do. But let me just pause and once again, thank you for having me. You know, oh, on buddy. podcast. I'm. Uh, I've been listening it to the very first uh, series with my friend Stan Ponte. I have learned and had so much inspiration from so many things that I've heard over your airwaves, uh, especially from Joe from Turks and Caicos and David Acosta and Nikki Field and Stan, um, and so many more to go. Um, so thank you. Uh, I'm thrilled to be the first, I think, Californian uh, on the site and. Um, Looking forward to uh, hearing many, many more. Why is San Francisco so special? That's a really great question. You left 20 years ago, right as I arrived. We were passing <laughs> in the night. Um, but San Francisco has always had a special place in, um, in everybody's hearts around the world. Um, you know, it's really the center of creativity and so much happens in technology um, and in wine from Napa Valley and from food and from our cuisine. It's a very exciting place to live and it's no doubt that people can afford to live anywhere in the world, choose to have full-time full or part-time or vacation homes here in San Francisco. And it's really exciting to meet people when they come here. But there's also a lot of people moving here for great tech jobs. Um, you've seen Uber and Lyft and the rise of all these social media companies uh, that used to be down on the peninsula from San Jose to Mountain View. They're all moving to San Francisco. They want to be close to our culture and to our restaurants and to our our beautiful scenery, you know, nature was incredibly kind to San Francisco. And uh, it's a great city to live in. Unfortunately, it's a really small city. Much, right. like Man much like Manhattan, we're bounded by water on three sides and we just can't grow suburbs and suburban sprawl the way they do in other metropolitan cities. So the city is only seven by seven. That's actually the name of one of our magazines, seven by seven, kind of cool. Well, yeah, that's really cool. But actually, where everybody wants to live is just one mile by two miles. So it's not seven by seven, it's, it's two by one, it's even smaller than that. And so as realtors, we get the hard, hard job of finding people homes because every time something comes on the market, um, there's usually four or five buyers that want it. And uh, our listings here do not suffer from days on market. They usually suffer from being sold before they ever come to market. So it's, it's a pretty rapid and fascinating city. Um, the photographs of our homes and apartments, you know, with views of the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, they are posted worldwide on real estate blogs to the Wall Street Journal, you know, to the New York Times. So it really is fun to practice here, but it is hard. It is a very fast paced real estate business. And most people in it have a very, very hard time keeping up with it. Well, not you. You've done really well in that regard. Um, you know, and, and, and you're right, San Francisco is such a beautiful city. Everything from the Painted Ladies, that uh, series of beautiful Victorians in Alamo Square, to, you know, Pacific Heights, to everything that that city offers. It's, uh, it's amazing. And 
you know, what I think is really beautiful is how the city has developed. You know, you also talk about that core of that two by one, but then those that have become in the peripheral of that, even like Dolores Missionary and things like that, even that's almost untouchable now, where yeah. 20 years ago, it was an area that, you know, you probably wouldn't even drive through. Um, but yeah, but now it's just so chic and amazing. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to see that whole um, gentrification that happened in the city. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's um, because the two by one um, strand where everybody had historically wanted to live just wasn't giving up. And it's very preservationist and we couldn't build new. You know, the housing stock is 100 years old and you have to remodel it. Um, the apartments were few, far and in between. You know, the co-op and the condo buildings were either pre-war or mid-century frozen in time with no new developments. So it's not unexpected that places yeah. like Dolores Heights, you know, or the area around Dolores uh, Park, which is where a lot of the tech luminaries have decided that they want to plant their flags and make their homes. So Mark Zuckerberg, uh, was the first uh, to buy uh, and then bought a couple of houses around him and uh, planted his flag. And soon, you know, the CEOs of Airbnb and Jewel and Lyft uh, all got homes near there. So there's this whole new luxury area that's propped up. And of course, all of their followers and all of their fans and all of the cool people that want to be seen with them in cafes and restaurants are also um, buying in that neighborhood. So it, it has been really exciting. And there's one more new neighborhood that's kind of very Manhattan-esque, which is kind of where I fit in, is there was no new construction allowed in, in San Francisco from about 1975 on uh, of anything more than six stories. But they decided to ra relax that in our warehouse district, in our museum neighborhood, um, kind of like going to Soho about 30 years ago. Our south of market area, has had an explosion of luxury high-rises uh, over the past 20 years. And that's really become my specialty because those started going up exactly when I moved here. So today we have 25 luxury high-rises between you know, 20 and 100 stories where wow. um, they're offering the most incredible amenities, the most incredible views with you know, Michelin star restaurants that are popping up all around. That's kind of the new hot neighborhood and I've, um, I've decided there were enough realtors that were chasing, you know, the $10 million single family homes. My market was going to create a luxury lifestyle product out of the resale of those luxury condos. So you figure, let somebody else go for the $10 million homes. You'll go for the $50 million condos. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we talked about ships passing in the night. Before, I've been in San Francisco for 20 years, but before that I was in Manhattan for 15 years. <laughs> and um, of course, all we did was live in high rises. Uh, sure. So got to San Francisco, that was missing. That's amazing. And it was missing when I was there, it certainly wasn't there. Um, but, you know, before we get too far ahead of this conversation, please share with the listeners how you got started in the industry. Oh, okay. Well, um, thanks for asking. That's a good one. As I mentioned, I'd been in New York for 15 years before my move here. Um, my business there was you know, business development, sales for performance improvement, 
um, and consulting firms. I had worked for a variety of, of companies during the time that I was there. But one company um, sent me around the world a bit and I actually got to San Francisco. But while I was in New York thinking about my career, I got to know a couple of really great um, realtors in the city uh, who today work for um, different brands within the the uh, Rilogy banner. But Robbie Brown was a very, very good friend of mine and remains so to this day. But I used to watch him in awe and how he was realtor to celebrities and realtor to the stars and, and friends would buy and sell apartments with him. And I always thought, I want to work for Robbie Brown. As soon as I finish this consulting gig, I'm going to come back to New York and I'm going to work for him. But work brought me to San Francisco and I really, really loved it here. So after a couple of years, I decided let's do the real estate gig, but let's try it in San Francisco. If it doesn't work out, I'll just move to New York and Robbie will take care of me. And um, one thing led to another. I joined Sotheby's and I've been here 15 years, uh, 15, wow. 20 years in New York. So it's been a, a wonderful ride, but it was kind of a back uh, door approach knowing that I was always going to be in real estate. That's a great story. And so, you know, the 15 years that you've been with the brand and, and building your career, you've now built an incredibly successful team. So at what point in your career did you decide that a team was necessary? And how did you go about structuring that? Because that's really when you become almost like a sole proprietor to like a corporation, right? Where you have other employees and other people. How did it get to be? It's, it's, that's a great question. I'm happy to answer it. And I think it's where a lot of sole practitioners make mistakes. Mm. I see a lot of people do or approach the team thing too early. If you do it too early, it's not authentic and clients will sniff you out. What you have to do is successfully take on your market and become a big solid producer with your own brand that clients will recognize and then you'll understand when you're too busy and you have too many clients that you can't pay attention to all of them simultaneously. But if you attempt to expand to a team before you have a successful brand, it just won't work. Teams are very, very expensive. And the people that you hire are smart and deserving. If there's not enough business to go around for everybody, it's not going to work. People hire my team because they believe they're not gonna get one or two people creating you know, their real estate goals. They believe they're gonna get seven people working on their goals and pushing it forward. It's a very institutional tested uh, approach that has results. But if you go to that and you hand, if you go to clients and you hand off people that aren't prepared and you're not involved, it's not authentic and you'll get fired. So- yeah. I think that that- Go ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, if you're a practitioner in the business, a sole practitioner, you'll know when it's that moment. If you have to think about it, it probably isn't. I think that is such an incredible key. What you just revealed is probably going to help so many people because you just really, it has to be organic, right? Because right. the audience is just so sophisticated. Everyone yeah. can find out everything on the internet. And... Yeah what they need you for is to be that advisor. Nobody needs a salesperson. Everyone needs an advisor. Right. And that to me is just, 
I, I thought what you just sort of said was so beautiful. It's just an organic timeline. If you're questioning it, it probably isn't your time. Right, exactly. I think it's that's beautiful. Like, it's, it's kind of like pornography. I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it Jesse Helms who said that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's, there's, there's one analogy. I like that. <laughs> God, I missed you. <laughs> Great to connect with you. Absolutely. So, Greg, you've represented some of like the most expensive real estate, not only in the city, but really in, in the world. What unique things do you do to market those properties? Oh, thanks. That's a great question. You know, obviously every property is different and every market, every market is different, but I think when I look at um, our team taking on a significant listing, we want to remember and always default to the brand. Mm. As, as we know from past uh, podcasts, the brand has an extraordinary halo effect. So when you come to the marketing of um, an expensive property with the brand, you have to remember to leverage the brand. And we work with clients, scientists, scientifically, just as we would if we were approaching, you know, auction with an $80 million commission to sell a Picasso. We want to do everything slowly, intentfully, and to curate every property. So at that incredible moment, when the veil is lifted and we launch it to the world, everything clicks and emotions run high. It's difficult to do. You have to have a business plan and you have to be prepared to spend some money, but you can do it. And the great thing about the brand is we have extraordinary resources and step-by-step on the outlines and plans and checklists and suggestions and, and avenues for marketing to do it that none of our competitors have. Now, don't be surprised if you have to think about spending 20, 25% of your inspect of your expected brokerage fees on marketing. And most agents I know would shudder to do it that shudder to do that. So it's okay. Not everybody should enter the game to try and market trophy properties. You have to hire the most expensive photographer, the best videographer, drone still and video photography and videography. You've got to host events. You've got to buy lists and buy research. You can literally spend tens of thousands of dollars before you ever get to that moment where you're lifting the veil, but it'll all pay off when it sells. And you do it so well. I got to tell you, when um, I was in San Francisco a few months ago, you very graciously hosted me in your home. And then when you showed me one of your incredible properties that you were bringing to market. Remember that penthouse? Yes. That was so yes. exceptional. And I don't know how much we can say about the, the property, but it was such an incredible property that had not been on the market for quite some time. And how much? 35 years. 35 years. And you were doing all of the prep work on it you had painters in, you were doing a bit of upgrading to it at your expense before you were doing that unveiling, as you say. 
all getting ready for that, what we call the Picasso moment. Right, right. We, but thank you for recognizing that. And that was a fun tour. Um, and it was a very unusual space that um, took months to plan. Um, but it deserved it. And doing sure. less than that would not have given it its Picasso moment. Well, you certainly did that. <laughs> <laughs> you. So, you know, we, we talk about San Francisco as, a, as an international city with, uh, with many global buyers. And, you know, you and I have done some trips together in Hong Kong in years past and other places. And, you know, you jump on a plane very readily to try to attract these buyers. But what other things do you do, Greg, to attract the buyers for San Francisco that is in and of itself a global brand as a destination? Yes, that's, thanks for asking. It's a difficult question and I wish there was a quick fix. I could probably package that and sell that. But there isn't. Um, and it's probably no surprise that less than one quarter of a percent of the top 1% of Sotheby's agents do this well because it involves actually stepping outside of your own market. But yeah. you do have to figure out where your feeder markets come from. You know, for us, it's you know, Los Angeles and Seattle and New York and Asia. And you actually have to spend a lot of time there. And you have to figure out who are the referral sources. Are they the wealth managers, the attorneys? Um, are they the, um, the Sotheby's agents or even non-Sotheby's agents in those, in those offices? And you have to meet with them and you have to prove to them over time that you are worthy of introductions to buyers who are coming to San Francisco. I'd like to think that international marketing and international referral management is more of a long-term process rather than one event. If you think that you can do it for one listing, you cannot. If you think it's an event, it's not. It's more of a process that you establish over time. You have to go out, you have to educate on your local market. You have to be educated about their market. You need to entertain. You need to show them that you are in the business for the long run. And when you do that well, the buyers come. Other than that, you know, the brand offers many opportunities for print and online, you know, advertising and exposure. And depending upon, you know, where your market is, you know, in the world compared to, to other economies, you know, you can do very well that way. And we have, but nothing will attract international buyers more than an outstanding and organized referral structure within your, within your refeeder markets. And, you know, I've been doing international for, God, if you count the banking world also for over 25 years now, and you hit it on the head. It's all a relationship. It's not as though you're going to go and sponsor an event and you're going to get the buyer for your $10 million property. Right. That is probably not going to happen. But what you're building is your brand in the marketplace where your buyers reside. Right. And Michael, I just want to share that in 2008, you were the one who told me that message. We were at the Hong Kong, you know, Sotheby's auction. The world was falling. The stock market was down 40%. And together we watched the Obama-McCain debate. Wow. And I thought I was there to sell a $40 million property. And you told me that it was the beginning of a world of building global referrals. I'll never forget that day, Michael, thank you. 
Wow, I was quite wise back then. Well, thank you for those for those words, Greg, because, wow, have you ever taken that to heart? Um, that is, but it's true. It's what you what you build. And, you know, in, in, in 2008, I was still selling real estate in, yes. in Miami. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't even on the corporate side back then. And I know that, you know, it's funny, in 2008, I recall it was, of course, when everybody was, you know, having their worst um, years, but it was really interesting to me because, um, very quick story, I was um, representing a financial hedge fund manager, and I didn't really, he wanted to buy a penthouse in one of the buildings in, in, uh, in Miami, and um, we couldn't get the price that I thought he should pay for it in the current crisis that we were dealing with. And his wife said, just pay whatever they're asking. We want it. And I said, I, said, I don't feel good about that. And he, we had uh, lunch together. And he said to me, um, you're really talking yourself out of a six-figure commission. And I said, I don't want to be your transactional broker. I want to be the person who advises you for your real estate. And he said to me, I, uh, do you know what I do? And I said, well, I know you run a hedge fund. And he says, actually, we run a vulture fund. And at that lunch, he hired me on retainer to set up his vulture fund for all of the opportunistic opportunities that were to occur in the Miami real estate market. So that was just a greatest lesson to me in 2008, where if you stick to doing what is right, right, you actually end up doing what's right for yourself by doing what's right for others. And it was a great lesson for me. Yeah, that is great advice. And as I tell my team frequently when um, people come to me with challenges is just be authentic yeah. and be yourself. Yeah. The, rest, the rest will follow. That's a great story. You know, it, it was, yeah, it was sort of like, maybe that's where my wisdom came from in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I must have seen you right after that. <laughs> so speaking of lessons, Greg, What's the greatest lesson you ever learned from one of your failures? Failures. Oh, mm. wow. Um, that's a big one. Um, yeah. I can, I can think of lots of lessons that I've learned um, along the way, but no big failures are coming to mind right away. Let me continue uh, to probe that. You know, well, I or, give to... me, or give me a greatest lesson you've learned yeah. from one of your successes then. Yeah. Um, or, or other uh, things along the way. I think yeah. one thing that my team does very well, and I feel very strongly about this, is that we feel that it's okay to let go of bad clients. And oh, yeah. we deal in a, we, we're a high volume uh, shop. We do, you know, 80 to 100 sides of transactions a year, you know, from 2 million to 15 million each transaction. Clients, um, you know, we can usually snip out the bad ones when we're interviewing them, and it's okay to either run away or to um, propose really high fees so they run away. Mm. One of those two is a a great way to dissolve that. But sometimes, you know, when we do get long-term engagements and clients turn bad because they're not getting the results that they want, it's okay to let go. And I think most realtors have a very difficult time doing this. And I coach my team and, you know, whenever I'm on panels anywhere, I always make sure that everybody knows because 
it's, you don't often hear this advice, but it's okay to let go of bad relationships. We don't necessarily want to end listing terms early because there can be, you know, financial repercussions of that. But when terms are over, we can't, we don't grovel for renewals. We'll send notes that say, in our last eight weeks of our listing engagement, we look forward to be, uh, being of any assistance that you might require. We make it very clear that we're leaving them at the end of our term and extensions are just not automatic. We're walking away. That's hard to do, especially when you've invested tens of thousands of dollars uh, in marketing, but it's a good thing to do. And um, that's a lesson that we've learned over time that we just cannot avoid. And you know, and you're right, that's a really difficult lesson for people to learn. And um, sometimes, you know, for maybe this is the wrong word, but sometimes you have to train your clients as well. And, right. you know, you're in this super luxury market. And, you know, I was playing in the same field in, in, in Miami. And I remember something that, uh, as you were telling your story, um, when I was selling in Miami, I was on a plane somewhere and we were in the middle of negotiations. And so the client was trying to, um, you know, to, to get the, the, the next offer in. And so we had strict instructions on what was happening. You know, I let everyone know what was going on, including the client, that I would be out of pocket for three hours, whatever it was. And when I landed, I got this, um, this phone call from my, um, one of the team members on my team, and she was hysterically crying because this client had been so aggressive and mean to her that you know, she ended up in tears. And I said, you know, that's just not acceptable. And so when I finally called the client back, um, I, you know, I basically um, said to him, you know, I'm sorry, but this isn't working for me. Right. And he said, what are you talking about? And this is a buyer. And, um, and I said, you know, you knew what my time limitations were. We were, you weren't losing a deal. Everything was done. I get that time is of the essence, but we all knew you didn't lose anything. And, you know, there isn't, there's no excuse for making another human being cry. <laughs> and right. so I said, you know, I think you'll be happier somewhere else. Right. And he wasn't expecting that. It was the last thing he expected. Right. And he said, well, look, I'm sorry. I was just sort of like something else was going on. And I said, I'm not the person you need to apologize to. Right. And I made him call my, my, my team member and apologize to her. And, um, and, you know, and then it was fine. But I think you also have to remember that we're all human beings. We're all part of the same race. And we're all trying to sort of do the best we can in the world without hurting people. Right. And I think that's very well uh, framed. And what you did is you changed the base of the relationship. You actually changed the infrastructure. But to mm. do that, you have to be willing to walk away. And that 100%. Is, that's the toughest um, thing that many of us um, look at when we have listings uh, of which we've spent money. So, um, you know, not to spend too much time on that, but I think that that would be the, the greatest lesson that we've learned um, um, that we can that we can share with everybody today. I love that. So listen, Greg, you know, I know you a long time and you're probably one of the most generous people I know. You are incredibly philanthropic, but you know, it's just also with 
your friends and everything else. You, you, you're a giver. You just really love to, to give to others. Where does that come from? I mean, like really seriously, where does that come from? You're, you're such a good human being and oh. you always are concerned with other people's happiness. And that's rare. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, I want to be honest with you. Um, my problem is that I'm really selfish. <laughs> I am. Do it's explain true. that, please. Sure. I've been over this in therapy so many times. I'm, <laughs> I'm prepared to, to tell all. I'm a really selfish person. And I love being around good people. And I love seeing my friends and clients and teammates um, happy. Um, I love to help get people in a good space because when I see them happy, I get so much more than I give. And that's been a premise of my whole life. I just kind of figured that out about five years ago. But, you know, when I moved to New York at 21 years old um, and you start meeting um, friends and, you know, making, you know, associates there, you get invited to a lot of philanthropic events and you get, you get to do charity work. And, you know, the New York's, Theme is really big in, in helping others that are less fortunate, um, you know, both locally and around the world. And I'd never been exposed to that before. And it was just so much fun. And you meet so many people. But I did it for selfish reasons, because I enjoyed the people that I was meeting and the interactions. And I always felt I was getting back 10 times more than I ever gave. And there's one big event in New York that I went to uh, probably 14 of the 15 years that I lived there, because I know, Michael, you've gone to it a number of years as well, uh, although it's not at the same time. It's the big Toys for Tots event. Mm. There you see, yeah. you know, thousands of people coming together and collecting tens of thousands of toys during Christmas time to give to underprivileged kids that otherwise would not get a toy during the holiday season. I love that event, and I was not an organizer. Again, our Corcoran brothers, Robbie Brown and Nick Poshkas, have been doing that event for 35 years. But when I moved to San Francisco, that event didn't exist here. And so I basically just asked them if I could copy the format and let's do it again. So for 14 years here at San Francisco, we've had our own version of that party where we've, you know, every year collected four to 5,000 toys for 15 years, again, giving them to you know, underprivileged kids, uh, you know, living in shelters or families uh, facing crises because of the tragic fires that we've had in the region. Just knowing that we have brightened the holiday. Absolutely. And period for those kids, you know, that lives on, you know, for months and months and months. So I guess in answer to your question, Michael, I'm a really selfish person. And that's why I got so I hate to argue with you, but you're not selfish. I would, say, I would say, if anything, that definition to me is selfless, where you're only happy if others are. And that's actually just, just such a beautiful statement. So uh, I'm not buying the selfish part at all. Okay. I'll go with you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so... You know, you have such a beautiful, um, a beautiful marriage, your husband, Glenn, I know very well, and you both work incredibly hard. How do you do that balance of life, work, play? Oh, that's a good question. And thank you for um, being so kind to Glenn. He, um, he remembers the very first time we all went to dinner in Miami when you were still living there um, many years ago. Um, Glenn is my rock. You know, we've been together 16 years and I've only wow. been at the brand 15 years. So, 
you know, he met me when I was uh, in my year of sabbatical, thinking about going into real estate. So he's been so supportive from the beginning. But Glenn is not in the real estate business. And um, he loves the fact that I've um, built this team and we've built, um, you know, this industry and we have a special place in the San Francisco uh, real estate business. Um, but he doesn't always want to be a part of it. And so I've learned that over the years that we can work really hard for focused periods of times, but then I have to show up to dinner and I have to show up for the rest of the evening. And when we go on vacation, I can't do business and work from other places. And we've learned, we leave our cell phones at home and do complete digital detox for like a wow. two, three week period every summer when we go away. And we go away most weekends to the wine country and uh, try and limit work there. I don't work up in the wine country, only on San Francisco properties. So I do my best and Glenn understands that there's a balance that can be achieved. And you know, having a team really helps because not everybody on the team has to do everything at all times. So it's, it's really a partnership and you know, he really is my rock. He allows me to work as hard as I do um, and then you know, still have relationship time. Interestingly, as much as he's not a real estate aficionado, he loves his real estate. And we have over the years bought investment properties together that he's taken on, renovated, you know, flipped into, um, into sales or property management and has a lot of fun doing it. So he's got this, this passion for real estate that is not really brokerage related, which has been fun to see evolve. And every once in a while, we'll be um, in a car, you know, going to on on a way to a dinner party or something, and he'll say, you know, I thought of the perfect buyer for that new place that you're pitching, and he'll name one of our friends, and I'll realize, wow, what a perfect placement! And many sales have been made because of really great ideas that have come out of my husband, and uh, I applaud him for that. He's just such. Um, He's a great part of, of our team, a part of our family, um, and he really you know, is my rock. He makes it possible for me to work as hard as I do. I love him so. And you both complement each other so very much. I mean, it's, uh, he, he is such a wonderful person as well. Thank you. Yeah. So, Greg, I have one final question for you, and it's a final? question. Yeah, we, so we talk a lot. <laughs> Um, what is, this is a big one too, so it could take a little while for this to, for you to answer this one, but what's the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Legacy. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, Thank well, let you. me begin by saying that it's not going to be anytime soon because, you know, I'm 55 and I'm going to work for another 25 years. There you I'm go. I'm going to be one of those, uh, uh, realtors who can barely move at 80 years old, but still has to take on new clients. So, well, just think of the Rolodex you'll have by then. Right. Exactly. You, know? exactly. You, won't, you won't have to go anywhere. You'll make two phone calls and make a deal. Should we explain to all the millennials on the line what a Rolodex is? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, we, really, we really just did our like, age, didn't we? It, it's kind of like a contacts app. You'll get it. <laughs> it's a CRM. You know, I do want to um, see our business continue grow and thrive while I'm in it and after. And, um, you know, Sotheby's is such a great brand, but, you know, realtor experiences and expertise all over the map for consumers. You never know who you're going to, to get or the level of experience that you're going to get. 
I think the driver for me is that I want to create a service standard with the Greg Lynn team. And, you know, that's been going on for, you know, 15 years, the first three years with me alone and the last 12 years with a team. And by the way, two of my teammates have been with me for 12 years. So 12 a, years. Wow. 12, two of the, of the seven, uh, three of the seven of us have been on for uh, 12 years. But I want to create an experience, Michael, where anybody who interacts with our team, whether it be clients or referral agents or you know, agents on the other side, they have you know, this incredibly energetic, positive, uh, exceptional, authentic, rewarding, honest experience like no other. And I think we have that and we've built that and we wanna continue to grow that and expand that here you know, within San Francisco and maybe even you know, some other uh, surrounding places. But the legacy has to be all about service and experience in complement to our great brand. Um, that would be the legacy that I want to leave in San Francisco. And fortunately, I'm gonna be a part of that legacy for the next 25 years. Well, that's a good thing. And you know, I, I lied. I have one other question because something else came to mind as you were talking about this. And I know that, you know, in, in the last 15 years that I've known you and how you've built this um, incredible business and brand that you've built for yourself, you have also started working with some coaches. So yes. I'm curious as to whether the definition of how you so eloquently just put your plan forth for your legacy and what you like to leave behind and how you've grown exponentially over the, the, the last decade and a half. Did that come from the coaching as well? Um, I, that's a really great question. I don't think it came from the coaching, but it was validated through the coaching. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I've been coaching now for four years. In the business for 15, I've had a team for 12. Coaching brought it all home and helped me balance it. Because when you're a high-performing team leader, you have no one to talk to, mm. no one. You can't admit your weaknesses to your broker. You can't talk to other agents about your weaknesses. You can't ask for help if you are the one who always is supposed to be having all the answers. A coach is the perfect place to throw ideas out and have them uh, kicked around and improved um, and to help make sure that you have a clear vision for not just that year and the next, but three to five years, and to really validate everything that you're already doing. So coaching for me was nothing short of miraculous validation. And in doing it, my, my sales doubled from 100 million a year to 200 million a year, right away. I can't imagine not having a coach doing what we're doing. And I encourage everybody who is a team leader to think about getting one. Absolutely. Listen, I, I work with a coach and she has just been terrific with my trajectory as well. Um, so I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I selfishly just want one last question with you. One piece of advice that you would give anyone entering the business now. Oh, wow. I love this question. My one piece of advice is to look busy. Social, okay. media, social media 
makes it incredibly easy for new practitioners to look experienced in our business even when they're learning. That did not exist when I was in the business 15 years ago. But if you are new in this business, you should be following all of the great real estate minds in the world, not just in the brand, but otherwise. And look at how they position themselves and their listings and their lifestyles and their teams, and then start to learn those behaviors and look busy. It used to be to get hired in this world, we'd need a resume. No more. Then people looked at your website. They wanted to see what your website was all about. Well, that's kind of cool too. But now nobody will hire you as a prospective realtor to sell or to buy before they've looked at your social media. That's true. It's so, the, the whole, it's a level playing field. Um, people who are new could have aggressive social media programs um, and actually rival those who are most successful in their markets who don't. It's pretty crazy, but that's the whole beauty of technology. The people who are busiest and look busiest um, and are smartest can take on the old guard. I love that. Well, that's terrific. Greg, that's a really great piece of advice and one that I actually have not heard that often. So thank you for sharing that. You're so welcome and thank you, Michael, for having me on this talk. It was so great. Greg, really, thank you for the time that you spent and really the idea in your, in your candor and just talking about everything. I so appreciate it. I miss seeing you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Um, but thank you again for the conversation, Greg. You're welcome, Michael, and count on it. Thanks again. Bye-bye now. Thank you, and thank you for all of you for joining. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you very much.